Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia de Bercier. And since it's Shark Week, we're going to be talking about the Great White Shark, which probably needs little introduction. Yeah, I mean, hopefully you, you know what a Great White Shark is. It is a very large predatory shark unsurprisingly. And Sophie mentioned that it's Shark Week, which is a super fun week if you love sharks. But also we want to mention that Shark Week, as advertised by Discovery Channel, has and continues to be extremely... uh, How would you say it, Sophia? Extremely... Um, misogynistic, yeah. misogynistic, and pretty white openly and, sexist against women. Yeah, yeah. So definitely, um, Discovery Channel seriously, not just in Shark Week, but also like generally, really needs to work on its diversity. And this has been an issue that's discussed very openly in the science communications community that Discovery has yet to, to address in a satisfactory way. So uh, while we we are excited that it's Shark Week, uh, we also just want to put that asterisk in this podcast because it's really important that we talk about that and that we try and improve the diversity in science communication that's out there. So, I mean, Dr. Catherine McDonald, who's a marine scientist and teacher, just released uh, an article in Scientific American talking about misogyny in shark science and shark week, and we highly recommend you give it a read. It's incredibly well-written and really eye-opening to what's going on in that field, Uh, so we'll share it on our social media so you can take a look at that. There's also, there's a lot of work, great work being done by minorities in shark science, including the creation of the Minorities in Shark Science group. So they are Miss underscore Elasmo on Twitter. I highly recommend giving them a follow. They do great work. They're founded by four black women in shark sciences. So yeah, they're doing awesome work. Go support them. Go follow Dr. Catherine McDonald and all the other amazing women and people of color in shark sciences. I think it's really important to acknowledge when you're doing a podcast like this that's about conservation and I guess just biology in general, like there are a lot of issues with a lack of diversity. Mm -hmm. And in science communication, you know, mainstream Western environmentalism. So I think we should be acknowledging it more often. Mm -hmm. It really changes your view of science when you start to follow what's happening in current events. Maybe that was too long of a tangent for the start of our podcast episode today, but I think it's really important and I'm I'm really excited that such a high publicity thing like Shark Week is also being used as a kind of a platform to call out, yeah, misogyny and and racism and other inequalities that are happening in, in science. Yeah, definitely. So we'll dive into the great white shark in a sec, but of course, first we have to say what Blathers has to say. So yeah, if you ask Blathers about the great white shark, he'll say, Great white sharks are obviously known first and foremost for their biting. They are masters of the craft. They do lose teeth regularly through biting-related activities, but luckily, those teeth grow back quickly. In fact, their missing teeth can be regrown in a single day. Just imagine their tooth fairy related income. Yeah, this is so interesting because Blathers definitely acknowledges like death before, you know, but then not with the great white shark. Like it's just biting related activities. Um, I find that funny. He's really like kind of whitewashing the great white yeah. shark. <laughs> but I do think we can get a little bit deeper than that. Yeah, just a bit. I actually don't have many tooth facts, so it's good he said that. Yeah, that's a cool fact. So, 
yeah, more about the great white shark. So they're in the family Lamnidae. So that includes things like tiger shor- sharks, sharks, tiger sharks, <laughs> macro sharks, and basking sharks. And so it's a pretty big group. I will say, looking at pictures of the sharks in this family, they're not the cutest things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> they're, they're a little haunting. They all have those like really deep dark eyes that are kind of soul sucking. And, like, I I try not to comment on animals' appearances in a negative way. I try and be positive about it. But they're a little spooky looking. I will give them that. (laughs) Uh, For the Great White Shark Range, this is pretty interesting. So a lot of the time you see pictures of them in, like, South Africa or Australia. So they can be found pretty much everything below the Arctic and everything above the Antarctic. They have a huge range overall, and they're also known to migrate pretty big distances too. So yeah, in terms of size, they can get up to 6.5 meters in length, which is like pretty long, Uh, and the females will be bigger. So they're kind of averaging more like around the 4.5, 4.8 meter length. Males looking more around 3.3, 3.9 meters. But amazingly, these species can live up to 70 years. So I just think that's, kind of insane but they don't have a lot of babies so we talked about like sunfish a few episodes ago and how they have like a bazillion babies these guys only have two to 14 pups in a litter also i love that they're called pups shark pups that makes i i really enjoy that but unlike a lot of other fish species oh yeah and i should say they are fish in case anyone out there is wondering if they're fish they're fish but yeah they don't lay eggs they give live birth so their eggs will kind of develop inside the female and oddly enough like I came across the fact that the babies eat the unfertilized eggs in the mother and so that's how they get a lot of their nutrients which is so interesting to me I mean it kind of makes sense like what else are the eggs gonna do might as well be eaten and then the babies when they come out are a meter long so I think about that I'm like that's like a big baby that's like a giraffe baby coming yeah, out of the like mom. Yeah, that's like a human-sized baby. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I, I bring up those facts, though, because, I mean, I hear about it a lot. Maybe our audience doesn't hear about it a lot. But, you know, there's there's a lot of issues right now with shark conservation. Like, we're seeing strongly decreasing numbers of sharks. And that's because there are species that doesn't make a ton of babies. Like, once I, I read another fact that was... um. Uh, their gestation period's pretty long. It's, like, probably around a year. And then wow. mother sharks might even wait another year before they have another litter. So you're not producing a ton of offspring. Granted, those offspring are really big, so they're probably, I would think, more successful than the sunfish babies are when they come out. But um, even so, like, this does affect their population quite a bit. And, of course, when we're talking about great white sharks... We're going to get to their predation behavior. That's what they're famous for, the breaching out of the water after poor fleeing sea lions, just the terror. Anyway, they're amazingly (laughs) adapted. (laughs) So the young sharks, those meter-long babies, they're going to be feeding on fish. They're not going after those seals and things like that. But as they get bigger, they start eating bigger things. So seals and sea lions are probably their most common diet, depending, of course, on where that particular shark is living. But yeah, they tend to really enjoy those species (laughs) 
and uh, as well as cetaceans, so things like porpoises and dolphins, although those are slightly less common. They're also thought to eat uh, deep sea creatures because they can dive to pretty extreme depths. So mm. squid and things like that as well are definitely on their diet. They are considered to be opportunistic, so they are going to eat pretty much whatever they come across, but it's also thought that they might prefer fatty animals rather than muscly animals, as shown by the fact that sometimes, quite often they'll find things like otters that have been obviously like killed by a shark but not necessarily eaten. Same thing with things like pelicans. There have been reports of them kind of biting seabirds and leaving them to die but not eating them. And so it's thought that maybe it's because they're very muscly animals and they just don't really like the taste of that. And I don't know, I've just heard a lot about, you know, shark attacks and how they'll like bite off an arm or something, but then they don't come back. Whereas with things like seals or sea lions, they'll keep attacking that animal. So it's thought that that might be a preference that they have. It's not absolutely proven, but that was something I was coming across when I was researching them, which is kind of interesting to think about because, I mean, these are going to be animals that are living in not the warmest water, especially the ones that are like in Canada or really far south. So they might need more fat in their system. Who knows? That's interesting, too, that they would like taste test humans. Yeah, and they're other like, things. Ah, it's not great. It's also thought that they might not eat kind of like strongly decaying things because they are scavengers too. So they'll eat like decaying whales and things like that. Uh, but if it's, if it's too old, they're not into it. But in terms of when they're actually hunting things like sea lions or living prey, they're feeding largely by sight, it's thought, and they have vision adapted to see both at night and during the day. So they are very often daytime hunters, especially in places like South Africa. They're finding more and more sharks are, are active right like smack dab in the middle of the day, not just, you know, in the evening or in the early morning. So if you're swimming in shark-infested waters, keep that in mind. You are not safe because it's noon. Yeah, so they're feeding largely on sight. It's thought that they recognize silhouettes pretty well, but in general, they have quite good eyesight for a fish. <laughs> they can also swim really fast. So they can swim about 50 kilometers per hour. And this is really impressive because, again, going back to that whole, like, they have quite the range. They can be living in really cold waters. And so the fact that they can swim quickly even in these waters is impressive because other sharks that are living near the Arctic Circle or in Arctic waters, such as the Greenland shark, they move incredibly slow because they have super, super slow metabolism. They're actually like one of the slowest swimming fish on the planet because of how cold the water is and, and they're not warm-blooded like humans are or mammals are, birds. So they're really trying to conserve the energy that they have. Whereas with great white sharks and a number of other species of shark, they're actually able to modify their body temperature, which is super wild to me because I've always been taught that there's like... There's ectotherms and there's endotherms. There's warm-blooded and cold-blooded. And fish are cold-blooded. But this is not... Ugh, as always with nature, everything you learn in high school biology turns out to be, like, kind of wrong. So um, yeah. they can keep their body temperature up to 5 to 14 degrees Celsius above the water temperature around them. And that helps them to move really quickly. So the way that they do this is that uh, they've got a few adaptations that help keep the heat inside of them. So for, first, that heat is coming from the really the, the movement of their muscles, like the friction in their muscles and the heat that's there. Now, in like if we were swimming, 
most of that heat is being sucked out of our bodies from the water. It, it, it absorbs a lot of heat really quickly. So one of the ways they get around this is their swimming muscles are really deep in their body. So they're surrounded by fat and other tissues and organs to help protect that heat from just emanating out into the water. And their muscles are also quite a bit bigger than normal fish. So that also helps them because it produces way more heat in the first place. The other thing is that they have a lot of really dense veins that help keep the heat inside the muscles and where they need all that heat to be to produce their high speeds and, and their movement. And they also have counter current flowing veins. So basically what that means is as blood is flowing into their muscles and near the muscle gets really warm, the vein that's taking the deoxygenated blood out of the muscle instead of carrying all that heat away, it's really close to the, to the other vein that's carrying blood back to the muscle. So in the end, the heat is kind of cycling back into that vein that keeps flowing back into the muscle. So it's keeping all the heat in the muscle as opposed to letting the blood carry all of that away. So hopefully that makes sense. But that's how they're able to, to kind of manage their own body temperature, which is amazing for a fish. So... That's, that's how they beat out the Greenland shark. And that's how they're able to get to all these resources that are in really cold waters and why you might, in northern BC, see a great white shark off the coast, which is just a mind-blowing concept to me. Yeah, but I think it's interesting that they have so many adaptations for warming themselves up. I had no mm -hmm. idea that that was so important to them that like they would, like evolution would have given them so much for doing that. And the same thing yeah. about what you said earlier about the way that their pups are, you know, developing inside of them and not externally as eggs. That's really interesting. Like, it's interesting kind of the crossover here. They're not mammals, but they have certain adaptations that get close to mammals, which is interesting. Yeah. No, and for sure. And like, you're starting to see those lines blurred in terms of how nature works and taxonomy works. It's kind of interesting, but... Could you tell us some more about... I guess their adaptations in terms of being like a top, top predator, which is what they're known for. Yeah. So, I mean, for one, like Blather says, they have so many teeth. So they can have like 300 teeth in their mouth at any given point, which is an outrageous number of teeth. But they're also like covered in teeth in a way. And those are called denticles. Um, and they're, <laughs> they're these like tooth-like scales. And sometimes scientists think are like maybe came from teeth or teeth came from them. There's a lot of questions around this, but um, they're teeth-like and they have them instead of scales, really. And what's amazing about them is that they're incredibly tough, but they're also really, really good for reducing drag. So it makes them even faster. So it's useful because, you know, of course it makes their skin tougher, but it's also hard for parasites to attach onto. So it, it helps them in that sense as well. And it turns out that females have much thicker skin than the males do as well. And it's thought that maybe this is to protect them during mating because they can get bitten during mating, which is really unfortunate. Apparently they're really smooth in one direction, but really, really sandpapery if you rub in the other direction. Mm. They also have amazing uh, senses of smell. So great white sharks have the largest olfactory bulb, um, or one of the largest olfactory bulb bulbs out of all of the sharks. So it's thought that this basically means 
you know, they can smell really well or their chemoreceptors are really good. So I guess in the water, you're not really smelling like we would smell in the air. They're sensing different things. But in, in essence, it's kind of a smelling sense. But in addition to all the regular senses that they have, they also have like a sixth superhero sense, which is their ability to sense electromagnetic fields. And they can do this through basically like, they look to me like blackheads. Like when you get a blackhead near your oh. nose, they're like the pores around their snout. And those are what help them to feel electromagnetic fields from both, it's thought, even the earth, but also their prey. There are even people right now who, I read a paper on some scientists who were trying to deter great white sharks from beaches using magnets and basically distorting and overpowering their sense of the electromagnetic fields in such a way that they want to leave which is really cool. And I think a much better way of keeping sharks away from beaches instead of large nets that capture them and often kill them. So um, yeah. yeah, that's kind of a cool bit of research based around that adaptation. And the other really interesting thing about sharks that you may already know, but I still think is <laughs> kind of spooky, is that they hunt from sneaking up on prey from below. And the reason they do this is they have excellent countershading. Countershading is something you see on a lot of aquatic organisms. They are dark on the top and light on the bottom. Basically what that does is when, let's say the shark is swimming above a seal, the white belly camouflages really well with the shiny surface of the water. Like if you ever swum in a pool and you kind of flip yourself upside down and look at the sparkly white surface of the water, that's what they're camouflaging with. Alternatively, if they are swimming below a seal, the darker color on the top helps hide them really well with the seafloor. So that way they can sneak up on prey like seals and they do not see it coming. Once they hit the seal, they'll try and stun it and they will take a nice big bite out of it and basically repeatedly come back and take bites. And that's how they feed on their prey typically, which is a little scary. <laughs> yeah, if you're a seal, for sure. Or I guess a human too. <laughs> There's something morbid about the idea of being eaten. Ugh. <laughs> something morbid, yeah. <laughs> the more There's something weird about it. Hot take, but I don't really want to get eaten. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so we wanted to talk about killer whales and great white sharks because great white sharks are the emblematic apex predator, you know, like the scariest thing in the ocean. But interestingly, killer whales have been known to hunt great white sharks. So I'm going to talk about this a bit because yeah. I love killer whales so much. That's kind of a defining part of my personality these days. <laughs> uh, yeah, because... I live part-time in the Gulf Islands off Vancouver, and the southern resident killer whales come by in the summer sometimes. They used to come by all the time, and now less so because they're very endangered. But anyway, I love an excuse to talk about killer whales. But yeah, just to be clear, there are a few different types of killer whales, and some are a lot better known than others, but they have really different diets. So some populations will just eat fish, others will eat marine mammals, and then it seems some will eat sharks. So these killer whales that are hunting the great white sharks and other sharks, those are very different from your kind of resonant killer whales that eat fish or even transients that eat seals and sea lions. I also want to say that, you know, you shouldn't be too scared of killer whales also and we shouldn't <laughs> demonize them. At the same time, it is kind of fun to have this like clash of two top predators <laughs> and who would win. And we got to give points to the killer whale because, yeah, they have 
killed some great white sharks in their time, so let's get into it. So the first time anyone ever saw killer whales hunting a great white shark was in October 1997, when some tourists were on a whale watching boat off the coast of San Francisco. I just think this is so funny because imagine you're on a whale watching boat, if you've ever been on one, you know, like you're just, you're on the boat, you're hoping to see some whales, and then you see a great white shark come up near the side of the boat. I mean, that's already kind of exciting and intense. But then, two killer whales come up and attack the shark, immobilize it, and then sort of carry it around on their backs. And then, like, they leave the dead shark there and it's got, like, a wound on it and it's missing its liver. (laughs) It's just interesting that these tourists were the first people to observe this really interesting phenomenon happening. The killer whales will essentially create a vortex above the shark, thereby bringing it to the surface, close enough to the surface that they can breach. And they know that in order to immobilize a shark, you have to karate chop it essentially with your body and then flip it over. And that's how you eat it. That's what they do. I I just, I was watching a scientific video on this and I was so shook. I wanted to share it because I think that's kind of shocking that they're able to coordinate that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like they just, it seems like they've developed quite an interesting and intense hunting strategy Mm -hmm. for hunting the Great Whites. And yeah, I mean, they're really into their livers, which I'll talk a bit more about. But apparently they can remove them with like surgical precision oh my god yeah which is really intense (laughs) but yeah i think when they observed this in 1997 it really stunned scientists because yeah great whites have this reputation of dominating the food chain but yeah apparently killer whales can take them down when they want to and it does make sense like killer whales have been known to hunt other types of sharks before but i think it's interesting because It really disrupts the food web, apparently. So the killer whales can scare off all the great whites from an area and stop them from feeding on seals and sea lions. So I read that between 2006 and 2013, a research team tagged 165 white sharks with acoustic tags and found that the years that great whites crossed paths with orcas, they ate fewer seals. That's crazy. So they just like sense the orcas coming and they like skedaddle. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a lot more research that can be done into this, but Uh like the 1997 incident wasn't a fluke because in 2017, five great whites were found washed up on a beach in South Africa with their livers missing. I mean, it really feels to me like, you know, an episode of my favorite murder or something. It's just, (laughs) it's very true crime. And scientists do like, they go full CSI in these cases and they'll do autopsies on the sharks to try to match the MO of the killer whales to the deaths of the sharks. They're kind of like great white serial killers that just kind of go around (laughs) killing them and they get really good at it. Like I said, you know, they'll make an incision mark near the liver and then, yeah, suck the liver out and scientists have described it as being like an operation with a scalpel. Which is really crazy. So wait, why would they, why do they go after the liver? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that they leave the rest of the shark. But yeah, the the liver in the Great Whites is really fatty, kind of like butter. And so apparently that's really tasty to them. And I, I always think of like, oh, I mean, why would they waste the rest of the shark for just the liver? But actually, because the shark's 
you know, use their liver to maintain buoyancy, they have really big livers. It can be up to 600 pounds, just the liver. So, oh, so they can, okay. you know, the killer whales can get a lot from. Yeah, they're like, it's, the it's worth it. Yeah. It's not like a little snack. But yeah, I mean, I'm interested to know more in the future about these killer whales off the South African coast, the ones that seem to like eating great white sharks because there's just really not very much known with them because they live quite offshore. Whereas, you know, if you live in Vancouver or Washington or somewhere else, you know, in northern Canada, a lot of times the killer whales will come in close and scientists really get to study them closely. But these ones in South Africa are very mysterious. And I think that the fact that they're great white shark serial killers just adds to the mystery. So, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as cool as this all sounds, we do have to mention that, unfortunately, great white sharks are also, like, on... They're considered vulnerable by the IUCN, so their populations are decreasing. So, like, we're not blaming the killer whales here. We're definitely blaming humans for this one. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is sharks, like, across the world. Those those larger fish, like we talked about with the sunfish, uh, especially large predatory fish, like tuna, swordfish, that sort of thing, their populations are going down quite considerably, mainly as a result of overfishing. But also, you probably, you may have heard of, of shark finning, which is a market for shark fins for most often shark fin soup, which is a delicacy in mainly China and Hong Kong. It's kind of like having lobster at a special event here. It's kind of a similar thing over there. So it is a, a delicacy there. And shark finning is the process of removing the fin from a shark that's been fished and then throwing the rest of the shark back into the ocean. So it's an extremely um, unethical, but also like wasteful practice that happens to a lot of sharks. But also there are a lot of shark fins that can also be fished in ways that are not wasteful, like they don't throw the body away and that sort of thing. So I do want to mention that because that has been a topic out there in the media that's been kind of like misinformed. I don't know how to say this properly. <laughs> Oh, complicated. I think it's, it is important because we don't want to, like, be racist. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really important to acknowledge that there are fisheries out there that are trying to fish shark even in a responsible way. And I don't think that should be ignored because it's not a black and white issue. But also, you know, the best guess is that there's between 26 and 73 million sharks that are passing through the, the fin trade. And these are both ones that have been through the process of finning, but also ones that haven't. And that's from a report from 2000. But overall, like 97 to 267 million sharks were killed in 2010 uh, across all fisheries for a variety of reasons. So both, you know, for the actual shark market, um, which can include fins, but also their meat, um, their cartilage, teeth, etc. But also as bycatch. There's a lot of sharks being overfished. This is why you're seeing those population declines. Well, one of the reasons, there's probably a number of reasons, but it's really important that we do keep this in mind as we go into Shark Week and we learn more about sharks. But also, yeah, follow those those shark scientists we were talking about at the start of the podcast. They share great information. They are awesome folks who are bringing diversity to shark sciences, which is important in every field. Probably a great thing you could do for sharks is just follow them and learn about them and and, and support those scientific communities and the work that they're doing to protect sharks and bring awareness to them. Yeah, that's very well put. And yeah, happy rest of Shark Week, everyone. <laughs> yes, happy Shark Week. <laughs> yeah, and thank you, Olivia, for sharing all that. If you could 
rate and review us and subscribe. We would love you forever. Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye.